Yeah, all right. Hey, guys. Um, I'm Rose Anderson, and I am not nearly as fun as your last performer. Um, so uh, the theme is investigation, and I'm actually currently kind of in an investigation of my own. My um, younger sister died four years ago under sort of suspicious circumstances. She was a drug addict who overdosed, um, and we found out later that it may have been something that's called a hot shot, which is where someone intentionally overdoses you. I'm currently in an MFA program, and my thesis is a memoir about her life and death and sort of the ensuing investigation that has happened. Um, so sorry to bum you out. <laughs> I have a really good life, don't worry. <laughs> um, uh, and one of the big um, indicators that maybe something had gone wrong was that she was a heroin addict and she died of a meth overdose. And so this is a piece from my memoir um, about getting the coroner's report, and it's called Heart Blood Sample. I run instead of writing. I go to my apartment's gym and I listen to loud, throbbing music and run until the image of her body is replaced with breathless black spots. If my heartbeat slows too much or there is a break in the music, she appears. Her back on the tile floor and her feet resting on the bathroom counter. For a moment, she is laughing and I am next to her. I can feel her feet lean against mine. Her socks are soft and gray and they are warm against my bare toes. I do not want to write this. The ending is always the same. I am not there. She is not laughing. And her feet, while still perched on the bathroom sink, are cold and four days dead. There is something called a coroner narrative that is included in the coroner's report. I was not expecting this when I ordered the report from the Shasta County Coroner's Office. This is how I know the position of her body when she was found. I have spent four years conjuring her body, have envisioned myself next to her as she died again and again, and yet in every version, I never imagined her with her back on the floor, feet balanced on the sink. I never imagined the smallest details of her clothing, black and gray striped leggings, soft gray socks, layered blue and black tank tops. The knowledge of this the exactness with which I can see her now is shattering in its precision. We would lie like that as children in the living room, our backs pressed against the carpet and our feet on the sofa. The narrative included in the report is written by Janelle Bartolo, the coroner investigator who was called to the scene when my sister was found. It is a page, single-spaced, and details Janelle's movements through the house what she saw, what she did, who she talked to. After initially being named in the report, Sarah is referred to as the decedent throughout. I read through this official story of my sister's found body and cannot help but think of that same evening, the phone ringing at my stepmother's house and all that followed. Before Janelle receives a call at her residence at 2010 hours to examine a deceased subject, my stepmother receives a call from Scotty, who is hysterical, so loud that I can hear his tinny weeping from across the room. 
I make Sharon ask if Sarah can be resuscitated, not knowing she has been dead for days. When Janelle arrives at 1144 Beltline Road, I am holding my stepmother's shoulders over 300 miles away, shaking out of her a promise to not hurt herself in response to Sarah's death. As Janelle walks into the house, down a hallway to the bathroom to observe my sister lying supine on the floor, I am on the phone with my therapist, incoherently asking her what to do next. While Janelle and an officer load the decedent into the body bag and secure her in the back of the coroner's vehicle, I am in my truck beginning the hour and a half trip to my mother's house. As Janelle processes the decedent into the coroner facility, I am moments away from telling my mother that her other daughter has died. She weighs 110 pounds when the coroner examines her. She is 5'4 and has long blonde hair. She appears older than her 24 years. Her pupils are equal in diameter. There are noted needle marks and damaged veins consistent with IV drug use. She has tattoos on the left forearm, left bicep, right forearm, and the left lower quadrant of her abdomen. Her chest and breasts are unremarkable. Her nail beds are remarkable because of their bluish discoloration. She is a young white female. Cause of death is anoxia. Cause of anoxia is pulmonary edema. Cause of pulmonary edema is the toxic effects of methamphetamine. I know what these all mean now. Know what happened in her body when meth flooded her system. How her lungs filled up with fluid. How she most likely hallucinated in her final moments before her brain shut down from lack of oxygen. Due to a strong suspicion of drug overdose and evidence found at the scene, Janelle rules out an internal exam. When I spoke on the phone to Janelle days after Sarah's body was found, she told me that when she looked at my sister, she knew that she had been a good person who had ended up in the wrong place. When she said she was sorry for my loss, I believe she meant it. I was okay with the last person to touch my sister's body being this woman who took the time and care to talk to me. She explained to me the results of the toxicology report, and while I had been surprised that Sarah had died of a toxic meth overdose and not heroin, I had not fully taken in what it all meant. This is why I ordered the coroner's report, expecting a few pages with numbers and exam results, Sarah's body reduced to data. 13.25 milliliters of heart blood was removed from Sarah's body and placed into two vials. One milliliter of vitreous humor was also taken. When I read this, I somehow make the association between humor and funny bone and wonder why they took a sample from her elbow. In reality, vitreous humor is the transparent jelly-like tissue that sits behind the eye lens. Why did they need to pierce the most vulnerable places? I wish for her heart to be intact, even though I know it is eventually burned, turned to ash, and thrown into the sea. I resent these strangers pressing a needle into her eyes. Sarah didn't like anything touching them when she was alive. Three kinds of drugs are found in her system, benzodiazepine, methamphetamine, and opiates. The only drug found at a truly toxic level is meth. The chart shows you what the range is for potentially effective levels of the drug, what would make you high. 
and what the range is for potentially toxic levels of the drug, what could kill you. The range for potentially toxic levels of meth is listed as 0.2 to 0.5 milligrams per liter of blood. Sarah's toxicology report shows a meth level of 2.7 milligrams per liter, more than 10 times the lower end of the lethal range. Many addicts live on the edge of overdose. If you had tested me at the height of my coke habit, I am sure my numbers would have been in the potentially toxic range. This is what, part of why addiction can be dangerous. The more you use, the higher your tolerance gets, and you push at that line between high and dead. The level of meth in Sarah's blood is not on the edge of overdose. It is miles past that edge. The heart blood tells me everything and not nearly enough. It tells me that Sarah's death was inevitable, that it did not matter if Scotty had found her four minutes or four days after shooting up. She was gone as soon as the milky white liquid entered her bloodstream. It tells me that she either had little experience shooting up meth or that Byron knew exactly what he was doing when he slid the needle in. It tells me that her tired heart held on to whatever evidence it could until Janelle could look inside. The coroner's report is lying on my desk. I read it again and again trying to understand the story. The ending is always the same. I am not there. Sarah is not laughing. And her feet, while still perched on the bathroom sink, are cold and four days dead. Thanks. Hi, Persisters, and hi, Rose Anderson. Hi, that's Thanks my for, name. That's your name. Mm -hmm. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. It's a lovely day mm -hmm. in Southern California. Rose, you um, performed a piece for our show that was beautiful, and I was lucky enough to get to go to your MFA um, uh, thesis performance last Sunday. Mm -hmm. So I had two Sundays of Rose Anderson. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. And I think one of my favorite things about watching you perform your own material is that a lot of your material is, is, can be very dark, mm -hmm. but you're the sweetest person. Ah, so it makes it safe. <laughs> the audience can go with you and not right. feel uncomfortable because you're doing it in a nurturing way. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's my personality in general. Like I've had a fair amount of what is considered trauma in my life. And then in order to relate to people without overwhelming them, I think you have to take care of them mm. when expressing that trauma. And I usually sure. try to do it through humor. Like yeah. the, like I have a good life, you know, like making mm -hmm. sure that people know I'm okay. It's yeah. not always true, but in order to connect to people, I think you have to make them feel at ease. Otherwise yeah, you're just bumming everyone out. That, Sunday that I saw your show a mm -hmm. week after our show you we um we interviewed uh, someone on the show and she mentioned that she said she was going to say a trigger word and then someone in your show said warned the audience that she was going to say it or she the woman we interviewed um apologized for saying a trigger word and somebody in your show warned the audience that there would be trigger words and yes. it was the first time in my life where I had experienced people saying that or warning an audience or taking care of people like that. And I think it happened again later in that night, like when I was watching something on TV, but it was, I, 
had never felt so taken care of by people about to talk about something that was difficult. I think we, so it was three of us that performed and we were all dealing with fairly difficult material. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think we just felt like we need to let the audience know that they're not about to encounter like three sweet, you know, (laughs) readings about, um, you know, relationships or, or, or whatever that, that, that the audience needed to be aware that they were in for like, um, a night of like intense material, And I think it's good just to give people the heads up because then they're not taken off guard and then they can just hopefully enjoy it and be in the moment with it. Yeah. Um, Are there, are there, how many women are in your MFA program? Oh boy. So you're in the MFA, a creative writing program at CalArts about to graduate. I'm graduating in a week and a day. Yes. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Very exciting. Crazy. Let's see how many women are in my cohort. I think there's like 16 of students in my year and there's only like four or five men. Wow. It's way more women. Wow. Unless I'm miscounting the men, in which case I'm sorry. That's fine. But no, it's mostly They're women. They're probably not listening. They're probably <laughs> not. And I Touché. think there's only one straight man in our program. Wow. Yeah. So You're we like, w- he already has a book deal. <laughs> No, he does not. <laughs> Don't worry, he's not listening either. <laughs> he's definitely not. Um, so we were the cohort without any romantic drama, which was lovely. That's mm-hmm. cool. That's nice. Yeah. And it, has it been like a nice supportive group of people? There's a core group of us that are very supportive. Sure. Is yeah. it like that scene in Girls where she's at, what, Iowa? Yeah. And they're all sitting around reading each other's pieces? Um, yeah, not as mean. Okay. Yeah. CalArts is like not competitive. Um, it's like quotations. Yeah. Right. It is fairly not competitive. We do really different work and they're not trying to make us do, they're not like Iowa. It's all about like, you're going to leave and you're going to sound like an Iowa writer and you're going to get an agent. And right. that's just not what Kellerts is. They're like, what kind of writer are you? You're going to in Maine mm-hmm. and you're just going to write novels there and life is going to be peaceful. Right. But I think a lot of times they leave without being really good friends. And I'm leaving with right. a community of writers nice. that I care about and whose work I support. When um, Just a little backstory. Rose and I met in college. We yes, both we went did. to Sarah Lawrence. And we were both in the theater program. Mm-hmm. You Did you know, when did you decide you wanted to go and get an MFA in creative writing? Was that something you always wanted to do? It was something I was encouraged to do while at Sarah Lawrence because oh. I always did writing and acting. Um, and then, you know, I left school and life happened and I sort of went down the education route and was a private tutor and a teacher Mm. and I was pretty miserable. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, obviously my sister had died Right. and I felt like if I didn't leave and do something for myself now, it was just never going to happen. And I was going to spend my whole life in Humboldt County taking care of two grieving mothers. So, That's your stepmother and your mother that you talk about in your story. Wow. So I was like, well, I gotta, I gotta make a change. And I just, I sat down and applied to schools and got in a few places and chose CalArts. Where else did you get into? University of New Orleans. Okay. Hmm. That would have been interesting. It would have. They offered me a full ride too, which, um, yeah, I feel embarrassed to say because I didn't take it and I spent so much money at CalArts. <laughs> that's okay. But that's just knowing what you want. And I think that's okay. Yeah, I went and visited and it was just not the right Fit. program. Mm, right. It was like two white guys running the program. 
and that mm-hmm. was kind of it. And I was like, uh, that's tough. Yeah, you want diversity and yeah. a variety of professors who are going to work with you. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you going to CalArts? A lot of the a lot of your material is about your sister and and her passing. Do you think was it was it healing for you? Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you're able to take a trauma and narrativize it, it there's a healing component mm. to that, right? If we take a a trauma and turn it into a story. It, it distances us from it and allows us, but also allows us to sort of like work through some of the feelings around it. It's been a very hard two years because this has been what I've been working on primarily. Sure. So there's been sort of like no rest from mm-hmm. it. And in that sense, I'm kind of exhausted. Um, at the reading Beth was at, I also read two speculative fiction stories and that's sort of my, my happy place is like writing really weird shit that's kind of surreal yeah. that has nothing to do with my life. And then the memoir work is more like what I have to write. Um, but yeah, I think it was a necessary process. When you're saying you have to write, you have to write it for your thesis or you have for to myself. write it for yourself. Okay. Right. Like I was like, I knew this was my first book like that, that there were, that I couldn't move on to my next book until I had written this down mm-hmm. because it would haunt me. Um, so I'm yeah. really glad that I, that I have been working on it. But I have, like, fiction books that I want to write, too, so. And did you go into the program knowing that this is what you were going to focus on, or? Yes, I did. I, that was, like, my submission material was around this. And, um, and not everybody's like that. A fair amount come into the program not knowing what their thesis is going to be or changing their mind, and I was pretty steadfast because I knew I wanted the support of the department. Yeah. Who have been wonderful. My, um, my brother went back to both my brother and my sister-in-law after like being in the army went in went into grad school and law school and so they went a little bit later than most people in their class like me like you Mm -hmm. and they I feel um it's it's my uh interpretation that they kind of take care of other people a little bit when I gathered that a lot from you (laughs) in In a really nice way oh I mean mm. In my program, yeah, that uh, that it, uh, you curated that performance for the most part, right? Well, I I wouldn't say that. It was definitely a group effort. Um, I think like being a little bit older means I'm like fairly organized and like excited right. and like want to do organization. I was like one of the people who organized those events, right? And so there's several of us that like like to do that sort of work, and so do it. I think generally in friendships. And in communities, I tend to try to take on that role. Yeah. Um, not always to my benefit. Like, sure. I think sometimes I, <laughs> I put myself in that role and it alienates me a little from, from making, like, friendship connections versus, like, here, what can I do for you? Caretaker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that just my, my natural... Yeah, and then I, I, I yeah. think a lot of I think a lot of women suffer from that. Oh like yeah, you're just gonna you, you walk into a situation, you take care of other people mm-hmm. before you take care of yourself, or make mm-hmm. sure other people are having a good time before you focus right. on mm-hmm. your own good yeah. time. But I have to say, in my program, I've made you know several friends that are equally as nurturing, and I think we really take care of each other in yeah. a really nice way. And it's interesting. It's like intimacy on a creative level. Like I may not know a lot about like their home life. Sure. 
but like I know them in a really specific way so intimately. But yeah, like I couldn't tell you like what their brother's name is or Isn't that interesting? Because you just kind of become your own person and you don't talk about your siblings, which is something that like you like I know for me it's like so much of my identity is my brother's identity. Yep. And then I like don't know that much about your brother actually. See, but that just means that I'm growing, that I don't have to talk about (laughs) him anymore. It reminds me of like acting school, you know, you you develop these bonds with these people that you just like basically cut your heart open around and you're just like they become your family and your actual family just becomes a bit more distant in the conversation because you're like delving into really deep stuff. Oh, yeah. Like my mom doesn't really read my work. Um, Really? No. Particularly around my sister, which makes sense. sense. Um, She just like can't hear it. So there's like a certain amount of distance when we talk because she doesn't really know what my life is about here because it's been all writing. But like, you know, you you meet, say, one of the two women I was in that show with, Charlotte and Sarah, and like they know my work intimately. They know different drafts of things, like when I push myself too far and like revealed too much and how I've had to, you know, they know all these different steps that like really only my partner is the only other person that knows that and that's because he's a writer and has been willing to read every draft of everything I've written. Yeah, I was just gonna say, what is your process like with him? Do you um, talk about your ideas together? Is it more of like a final draft situation that you uh, share? We tend to talk at the beginning and at the end. So mm-hmm. like we'll, we'll bounce story ideas off of each other a lot, um, and then we'll go off and sort of work on it, and then walk out and be like, read my read my draft. Um, he's been. Amazing. He's read so many drafts of my thesis. I, um, although he hasn't actually read the final draft because <laughs> I just didn't want to put him through reading it one more time. Although I think he will. Uh, yeah, no, he's been lovely. He, and he's a good editor. So he'll go through and mark up. I'm, I'm kind of a comma whore. And um, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, They're subjective. Yeah, I just it's, think in creative writing, especially, right? Mm-hmm. I can put one wherever I want, and it's then better he, than undercoming. I know? think so. Yeah, I get annoyed by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do love semicolons, though. I have a little semicolon I tattoo. I haven't oh, experienced them enough. What? Where? Let me see. Right, right. She has a semicolon <gasps> tattoo behind her wow. right ear. For those listening, yes. Those boys in her MFA program. <laughs> if you and, didn't notice it in person, I'm telling you now. And actually, a woman in my MFA program gave it to me one night. It's my first and only stick and poke. Oh, wow. Really? It's commitment. That is Did it commitment. hurt? No more than like it. it getting waxed. Or I don't tattooed. think tattoos hurt no. more than getting waxed. Have you um, ever had laser hair removal? I have. It's. Like well, it doesn't hurt as bad as that. Got it. Okay. Yeah. No, it's not that bad. Nothing's or kind of crunchy. The same. Uh, um, bikini keep... wax. Nothing's. Yeah. No. It feels. It's better than that. It feels so good when you're done with the bikini wax. I feel the same about tattoos, though. Yeah. Same. Yeah. I'm, 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 I. I hope I don't get more, but I know I probably will. Of course. Yeah. I don't no. think I will ever get a tattoo. Why? I know. I'm just like I don't know what I would get. I don't know where. Yeah. I'm just like Ugh. I don't want to be. I don't know. Totally. I totally understand. Like if there was something, I'm not like anti-tattoo, just like what, what would it be? And I I haven't gotten there in my life yet. So 
Gotcha. And clearly, I'm not interesting enough. I need to get to a place where, like, I know oh. what all the tattoos are going like, to be, right? It's like what the Kardashians say. Why put a bumper sticker on a Bentley? Your body's a Bentley. Mine is a oh, is Volvo. That? I'm a Honda Civic. Like, you got to put a bumper, like, many bumper stickers I need, like, I need, like, an equality sticker. Yeah. I need sticker tattoo on my lower back. I'll do it for you. Bug. Great. With, like, a, a dolphin coming out from behind, yeah. like a wave. Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Why mess with perfection? Shall we dive into your story? Sure. Let's dive. Well, first off, a few questions about family. We're, we're um, so your mom, Sarah is your... Sister. And then there's a, a stepmom and a mom. Yes. Okay. Who are not together, to be clear. So my... Right. I do not have lesbian moms. Okay. Though I'd be down with that. That would be very cool. Um, My stepmom was with my father for many years, who was a troubled man. And when they split up, I kept the stepmom and ditched the dad. Got it. Got it. Although he has passed away as well. Um, So they've been my two parents for a long time. Got it. Okay. That's a cool relationship to have with a stepmom. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of don't know what I'd do without the both of them. And are they in the same place or are they? They're about an hour and a half from each other. My mom lives sort of like in a town and my stepmom lives like in the mountains in a house she built herself in like the 70s. What? That is so badass. Yeah. It's it's really badass and it's beautiful. Where in the mountains? Like what mountains? Um, (laughs) It's in Northern California in Humboldt County. So just in a region there. Uh, Yeah, there's like no internet. My cell phone doesn't work. Do you write there when you go? I do, yeah. But we're also sometimes lazy and just like read a lot and hang out by the pool. That sounds nice. It's really um, hot. I mean, we'll just, after this is done, we'll just go, we'll pull out our calendars. Yeah, yeah. Come visit. It's Great. beautiful. Sounds because amazing. that's, we, we talked about this, this is where humble cheese is. Oh, humble yeah. fog, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They're amazing. <gasps> so good. We'll it's go, the we'll best. We'll all have diarrhea together. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yes. No, it's so good. There's, so we could talk about cheese or we could talk about a hot Seth. shot. Okay. Oh, yeah. Hot okay. shot. The, yeah. What, what, is, what is a hot shot? Well, so the definition as I know it is it's an intentional overdose. So you right. give someone a, well, not you, Beth, because I don't think you'd give someone a hot One would give someone a hot shot, Depending. meaning they would give them an intentional um overdose amount of drugs and and the then. person who does that would be the drug dealer usually or or the murderer yeah it doesn't right. necessarily have to be a drug dealer but um i think too that it's not uncommon for people to shoot each other up mm-hmm. that that unbeknownst to me my drug use was cocaine and alcohol and there's no shooting up involved in that um but as as my sister and i had talked about it when she started shooting up that yeah it was like this thing where like there's an intimacy to shooting mm. each other up. I, we believe that it's a possibility that that's how she died, is that someone gave her a hot shot. So an, an intentional excess amount of meth. Do they think somebody was with her when she shot up? I mean, so I can't know for sure. That's a lot of what my thesis is about, or my memoir, is that I, you know, there is no way of knowing 100%. Um, we know that a person was the last person with her. He admitted it. Um, he had lied about a few things, which was like one of the indications that we had that maybe something was wrong. He had said they had gone to get heroin, but she died of like a very extreme meth overdose. Right. So it's it's unclear. She was in the bathroom with the door shut, which is a little strange. Um, 
Like she didn't. She was home alone because she would. She was supposedly home alone. She didn't have her phone with her, which, hmm. I mean, I bring my phone everywhere, and she was the same. She was separated from her dog, which is the dog was in the house, but there was the bathroom door was shut. It just seemed like if you're home alone, why would you go shut the door to your bathroom and shoot up when you're a regular? Mm-hmm. And like the drugs were found in the living room, but she was in the bathroom. So things like that. Uh, like she had been placed in there. Or that sh- they had gone in there to shoot up together and then he had shut the door behind him when he left. You Got know, it. that like, I did, it was just unclear like how this happened alone. Right. But by the time the police were involved, there was, she, you know, she was, had been cremated for over a year. Um, there's not a lot they can do. Part of why hot shots work or like aren't, are rarely prosecuted is because it's very hard to prove that, Someone they didn't who, want that, right? That sure. a, that someone who's referred to as a junkie didn't do it themselves, or like, how do you prove that right. without? And often, when people are found who've been over, you know, who've overdosed, they don't like sweep the crime scene for fingerprints and stuff. And no, right. they they're like, oh, somebody overdosed, right? And there's yeah. rarely like an extensive autopsy done because. There's just been, there's, you know, they overdosed on drugs and then that's what the family's told and then you usually get them cremated, so. Sorry, just to clarify, you said, so a year later, police contacted us. Got it, okay. Yeah. So What was it that led to them, like, reaching out to you guys? Right. So the story's a little more complicated than I think I've explained to either of you two, but um, my sister sold a gun that was used in two murders, that also resulted in a third murder. So there's this whole other murder trial that happened, multiple murder trials that happened, um, that Sarah was sort of like this periphery um, person to. Um, And the man who we think may have hurt her was one of the people on trial. And during his trial, somebody came forward and told the police that he had killed Sarah. Um, And that's when they started looking at it more clearly. Wow. He was on trial. He was acquitted on that murder charge. Um, So a lot of my thesis deals with, like, we had thought he was going to prison for this other murder and felt okay about, potentially okay about him not sort of, like, coming to justice for Sarah's death. And then through a series of, like, very strange circumstances, he was acquitted. Like, somebody turned, like, somebody testified against him and then switch their testimony and oh, that's on the last day. Terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So it's like a very complicated story. And my sister, especially I think for, for most people, is like this footnote, right? She's just this junkie who like happened to die mm. around this time, whereas there's this high-profile case in, in Northern California, like these three other deaths that were like particularly brutal deaths. And... Um, wow. Yeah, and her name is, like, brought up during his trial and stuff. So I, like, have ordered 1,700 pages of trial transcripts and, like, really researched this other trial that happened. Um, But so essentially that's how the police connected it officially. And they looked into it and pretty much said to us, like, there's no way for us to prove this in court, so we can't do anything. So you found this. So I can imagine that this is just, like almost like 
re-traumatizing, right? Right. It's already, it's like just another thing on top of such right. a horrible thing. She died in November of 2013. By February 2014, I had received a call from a friend in the same area where Sarah had died who said there's a rumor growing around that Sarah had been killed. So I looked into it on my own, wrote a like <laughs> investigative report that I sent to police and didn't hear anything. And then a year later, police contacted me and said, we think your sister might have been killed. And I said, I know. I told you guys this a year ago. Wow. And they were like, what? Oh, it never got to like the right person, essentially. So it's been interesting because you think that like you're moving on to a certain stage of grieving and then something else happens, right? right? Um, and it's sort of been like every year. It's now like four and a half years after her death. You know, something else happens that kind of like in some ways makes it worse. Right. Yeah. When did you get the um, toxicology report? Just a few months ago. So as part of my thesis, um, my department very kindly supported me financially in ordering a lot of these court documents because they cost a lot of money. Right. And I remember you talking. Yeah. yeah I remember you telling me like, when you got those. It's yeah. like $1,400 in total to get that's crazy. All copies of all these documents. So yeah, I only recently got the toxicology report. You think about all the other, like any other case, if people don't have that, the finances to be able to do oh, that, like it's so, so prohibitive. Many, yeah. yeah. It's not set up for like people to do their own research or to look into it at all. If I didn't have a department backing me um, and you know, they couldn't afford to pay for everything, but well, it's also like a little classist as well. Absolutely. people that are most, I mean, if, if, you know, ugh. Right. Or even if you want to hire a private investigator, like oh it's, it's, gosh, it's, it's so, so expensive. expensive. And I'd just like to point out that the, the person who we think may have had a hand in Sarah's death was the only one out of this group of people that was charged with these other murders that had, could afford a private lawyer. And he's the only one that walked free. The other two, one was sentenced to 150 years, and then he was actually what? murdered in jail. And then the woman who didn't ever kill anybody, she was just there and helped like clean up afterward, is in prison for like 30 years. And they had court-appointed attorneys, and he had but a the private attorney. they believe wow. actually did it. Was, did one of them, yes. Was, was acquitted. Was acquitted. And he had a private attorney. And... He had an excellent attorney. As I was reading the court documents, I would like yell. <laughs> I'd be like, God damn it. His attorney's so good. Like his attorney was just a fucking bulldog. I feel like I'm in serial right now. Yeah, it's a little bit like a Law and Order episode that never ends. And I will never, I, I think I've come to terms as I just sort of finished my thesis and I'm sort of wrapping up the manuscript that like I will never t totally know that this will never be one of those cases where like, that would be a serial because there's like no definitive mm -hmm. answer sure. unless the person came to me and said, this is what I did to your sister and that will never happen. So the piece that I read at the show was sort of like my interaction with getting that toxicology report right. years and years later and sort of not being aware of the minute details of the night that she died and um, really fully understanding how much meth had been in her system. I mean, I still allow for the possibility that she accidentally overdosed. Um, I certainly don't think it was a suicide. There was, like, nothing to indicate that in any of her messages to people. And even in, like, the manner in which the dog was left, 
like she wouldn't do that to her dog. You know what I mean? Like there was nothing mm-hmm. that indicated it was intentional. I still believe that there was room that wasn't that it was an accident because you have to. Um, but uh, yeah, we have no idea. So it's that sort of as as concrete as it gets as that coroner's report. We can talk about cheese now if you want. <laughs> you, I just have so much admiration. I, I like that you, well, first off, like this is like the understatement of the century, but like what an amazing tribute to Sarah yeah. is that mm-hmm. you're fighting for her and that it's, it's in your work, it's in your everyday and... It's pretty astounding. Yeah. yeah, I sometimes wonder what she would think about all this. Like, I, I, there's this chapter in my manuscript where I go to a psychic who talks to Sarah for me, and like, it is not like a loving reunited moment. <laughs> Sarah's just like super pissed that she got <laughs> killed in this interaction, and like, I'm like, is there anything for me? And the psychic's like, no. And it was that it was like that interaction that made me think maybe it was real because like of course my like selfish sister would be like this is still all about me which it is <laughs> obviously yeah. um, but I'm like really nothing like <laughs> I'm here <laughs> no she's really pissed she wants she wants him to pay that was sort of the the attitude um, so I wonder if she would like like being she really loved being the center of attention so she would love this right she or like love, am like I like your... revealing too much because I kind of make fun of her sometimes <laughs> um I mean ideally I make fun of myself too it's like fine walking that line yeah I can't tell <laughs> what she would think about all this That's so funny. yeah I don't know I mean I'll never know so I can just imagine we make a lot of jokes about her though we call her stupid Sarah because, you know, we're mad at her and we yeah. love her and it sucks that she's dead. So you have to laugh about it. It's, you laugh so you don't cry. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. Everything mm-hmm. that you laugh about. Yeah. Sarah was like very particular about her birthdays. Like she was a big birthday person, like really needed like a lot of presence a and attention. Of, a lot of a lot of addicts are like oh, that yeah. about their birthdays. Yes. And by coincidence, this last birthday of hers, my stepmom happened to gift me a pair of diamond earrings that she was like, you're going to get these once I die, so I'm just going to give them to you now. And I was like, oh, my God, Sarah would be so mad that I got a pair of diamond earrings on on her birthday. (laughs) So it was like sort of like those moments you have to hold on to. Yeah. Of how bratty she is sure was yeah so your family all they I mean I'm sure there's a lot of in the grieving as well but like they have a sense of humor about it both of your mothers are are able to find it at moments my stepmom is I you know my mom uh I was the one who had to tell my mom my sister died and I think that like my mom has two lives like what existed before I pulled up in her driveway that night and what has existed after and I as hard as it's been for me, I think it's incredibly different when you lose somebody that lived inside of you. Sure. And, you know, my mom will sometimes make jokes about Sarah, but it's not, um, it's not the same. She's, I mean, like she'll never be okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in, I, I think that in some ways all of us will never be okay. Like I think grief never goes away. Mm. I just think that for most people, like, life grows around it. And I think I've just been lucky enough to have, like, 
more potential for more life to grow around it than say my mom. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And I don't know if she wants a lot of life to grow around it. So I don't know. But my stepmom also just has a terribly wicked sense of humor. And so like I had cancer when I was younger and she used to call me Milton Burl. Because I was losing all my hair. Oh my. I didn't know that. Yeah. What? Oh, yeah. I had cancer when I was 18. It's why I was a little older showing up to Sarah Lawrence. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. You've, you've just been through the ringer. I've just lived a big life already. Yeah. So that's in the book, too. Oh, my wow. goodness. Yeah. Sometimes it's a bit much. I'm ready for like some non-exciting things to happen. You're getting married. I am getting yeah. married this summer. Oh my goodness! Yeah. That's awesome. Oh yeah. Now I have to f- think about the wedding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You went from thesis straight to wedding. I get. I mean, I I think that's what we're supposed to do, but we haven't. Where are you getting married again? In Humboldt County. Oh. Right. Yeah. So on a really nice piece of property. He's from the same area, right? He went to college there and stayed there, Got but it. he was sort of a, um, not an army brat, but his dad worked for the defense industry, and so they moved around a lot, and actually he went to high school in Palos Verdes, and oh, then moved okay. to Humboldt when he was 17, and that's where we met. And then six months later, I went to CalArts, and he ended up moving. My mom did tell me once when I was 16, don't date a man who won't go down on you. And I was like, well, I don't want to know what you're talking about. Good advice, She was mom. right, though. She was wow. totally right. Yeah. She sometimes says very wise, inappropriate things. That's so funny. Yeah. My mother's never done said anything like that. Oh, my mom uh, never. Oh, are you kidding me? Really? Oh, oh my, my mom's God, so... No. Yeah. The most risque thing my mother ever said to me was, it's okay if you date a man or marry a man 10 years older than you. <laughs> that's the most like, risque. That's about like as waspy as it's going to get and wow. like as risque as Kathy's ever going to get. My mom likes to say inappropriate things to me but if I say anything she freaks like she's like no 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 I don't want to hear that like Josh and I are in an open relationship and we'll be in an open marriage and she just like can't she can't she's like I don't want to hear about that but let me tell Ooh, you I want to hear about yeah. that yeah oh yeah you can ask yeah ask away I mean I don't even know where to begin <laughs> do you have like a set of rules oh yeah a ton what of what are rules. the rules yeah let's hear so it. the biggest rule is that uh, if at any point anyone's feeling uncomfortable for any reason we have total veto power so Mm. like say he's seen someone or I'm seeing someone and you know we're behaving as we normally do if like one night I'm feeling insecure or whatever and I don't want him to see whoever he's seen I just get to say not tonight and like there's no conversation around it it's like in other words like we are the priority in the relationship got it yeah and then there's rules around, like, how much time you spend with the other person. It's more like dating, not so much like full-blown relationships. So I wouldn't call us polyamorous, mm, right. which is like, I'm not looking for love with someone else. But I like having friends that I hmm. have the option of being physical with. And I like to flirt and go on fun dates. And it works best um, when you're doing it with someone else who's also in an open relationship because then they're not looking for a primary partner. Right, so that's right. pr- usually the biggest issue is like if one of us dates someone who like then wants more a primary and you just have to say like, sorry, I'm booked. No, I'm going home to someone I love. Do you have rules about um, 
it being in someone else's space or can you do it in your space? Um, I'm yeah, it hasn't happened so far, but yeah, I, um, I would, I, I, we're both open to it. We have like, we talked about getting like a set of sheets that was like for, so for the others. Um, Oh, I see the West Elm sheets are yes. on the bed. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like all about communication. Yeah. Uh, it's like strangely intimate because like one of us comes home from a date and we tell the other person all about it. So wow. like we've each coached each other on how to talk to a man or a woman. And so I'm bi or pansexual, queer, whatever. And that was a large part of why I wanted to do it because I can't imagine just committing to sure. a straight man yeah. the rest of my right. life. Right. Um, we've dated the same woman before. That was lovely. Whoa. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It's been, it's been good. There's been very few, like, I think the first night he dated somebody else, he went out with somebody else. It was a bad night because he like ignored me all day. And I was like, what the fuck are you doing? So we were both cheaters before. That's like the big backstory is like, we've both cheated in previous relationships and had a lot of shame around it. And so Mm -hmm. when we met, I had already sort of like done the open relationship, relationship thing a little bit. So when we met, I was like, this is who I am. I'm not sexually monogamous. And he was like, me neither. I've just always cheated. And I was like, well, let's not do that. So I think in the beginning, he had some like residual shame when he saw someone else. And so he would like act shady, even though I knew everything. Right. And then that's gone away now. And now we can just like talk and talk about it and joke about it. And since you got together, you were in an open relationship. It's been over two years. Yeah, I'd say... Well, he never did the thing he did on the first date ever again. And it didn't help that I had been on a date that night and had like a, how much can I say on this? Use (laughs) whatever you want to say. I had an awkward encounter with, I was going out, I went out with a woman and um, she like pulled out this double-sided dildo that I had an allergic reaction to and had to like run out of her, but I didn't want to tell her. And so I like ran, I was like, I came, I have to go. And I like ran out of her house. Oh, So I had had this like, and I was in pain. Like I had like a painful sexual encounter and then like he wasn't responding to my messages. So it was also like doubly Mm. like, I was like frustrated. That's never happened again. And uh, yeah, the more we do it, the more it seems it's lovely. It's also on the table that if either one of us changes our mind, you know, we've paused on it before. We, surprisingly, when we were living apart, we that's when we've done it the least. Although oh, most people would think it would be the opposite. Mm-hmm. Right. But the whole point is, is like you should do it when your relationship's at its best, not at its hardest. Right. Because mm-hmm. you're not trying to replace anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for dating, is it like, would you go on apps or was it? Yeah. Be, yeah, okay. we're both oh. on OkCupid and Tinder. And we say in our profiles that we're in an open relationship and looking for you know that so we lay it one of the rules is like you lay it out from the beginning unless it's like a clearly one night stand in a bar or something like mm-hmm. that where like it's not necessary but if you're gonna date the person right. they need to know I feel like if I was on the other end like if I was like on the other end of your tinder and mm-hmm. saw that I would I would I'd be like I'm going to need some proof that she's okay with this. That's, yeah. We've talked about me making like a... Like Like a a, certificate? Like a video. (laughs) Like I, Rose Anderson, give Josh full permission. Because men don't care, right? When I put that on my profile, they're They're like, like, great. "Great. Sex Mm. without love, please. Which means I have to vet a lot of the gross men. Um, 
Right. But when Josh does it, there's like this, like, really, does she know? And so, yeah, we've talked about almost like a hostage video, like proof, Hi, proof of I'm life. Rose. Yeah. You're about to have sex with my fiance. Yeah. And I'm okay with it. I am. I really am. He does a great stand up bit about it, actually. That's so funny. Like the little spiels that we each give to prospective partners and like what they each hear. Josh will say, like, you know, I can never be in love with you. I, this is like a friendship that, you know, wherever and all they hear is like he can never be in love with me and then when I say that to a man they just say like think all they hear is like, oh, like we I can love have, you too we can have sex together <laughs> like that's all that's all they hear two right. totally different things Completely. but that's also the benefit of dating somebody else in an open relationship because they don't necessarily have those expectations that, or like uh, they get that you can actually be with someone who's okay with mm-hmm. um, wow. having their partner sleep with somebody else hmm. I don't know. For me, commitment is like way more than having sex. Like there are a thousand things that make up why Josh is my partner and none of them are sex, right? Like it's, I'm not none of them. Obviously it's a part of it, but it's, I'd be way more upset if he like curled up in a onesie with someone and like let her clean out his ears while we watched a bad, while they watched a bad movie. Like that would make me crazy. But yeah. like you want to go have a couple drinks and like go have sex. That's yeah, yeah. If that's I hard. let somebody else, if I were to let somebody else pop a zit on my back, Peter would be so mad. Right, that's <laughs> intimacy, right? Yeah. Like we have different versions of like sacred intimacy. It's disgusting. Yeah, but it's like yeah, exactly. If Josh let anyone pick at his weird blackhead, I love picking his zits. It's yeah, like a, yeah. It's just I love it. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like it's a very. I mean, it's not a new. We've been dating for a year and a half, but like. I was always single before. I could never pop anyone's zits. Now I get so much satisfaction and joy out of it. And I don't know about you, but like my skin's cleared up as I've gotten older. So like I can't even do it to myself really. So I'm yeah. Josh just gets, bragging. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go pay someone to take Aww. all my stuff. <laughs> also, Josh's parents are evangelical and do not know that we are in an open relationship. Oh. Do they, they like podcasts? No, they don't. I right, don't think okay. they know what a podcast is. Good. So Fantastic. We're, we're fine. Good, good, good. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, it's like his worst fear mm-hmm. that they find out at the wedding. Because like someone we, the woman we both dated is going to be there. <laughs> oh, interesting. She's actually a good, like a dear friend of ours. Oh, yeah. that's nice. It was. Like we had met, um, her. they had met like years and years and years ago when they both did AmeriCorps and were both in relationships but had crushes on each other and didn't do anything. And then her and I met doing the show Five Lesbians Eating a Quiche, which is a great play if you haven't read it. Yes. Yeah, it's a great play. Yes. Her and I were in that together, and I was, like, one of her first strong female crushes. And so as, like, things we were like, oh, we have this strange, like, each of us have wanted to date her on separate grounds, and, like, she loved us together, and it was just, like, it was, like, a weird, perfect situation. Did you guys hang out, the three of you together? Yeah, that was it. Like, we took her out. It was nice. It was sort of like Mm. she had been with someone who wasn't great to her, Mm -hmm. like did not treat her with like, didn't do like nice things for her. So Josh and I were like, let's date the fuck out of this girl. We like took her out. We took her to a play. We like, I mean, we took her out like five times before anything really happened. I want to see that movie. Right? Yeah. Just like a couple dating the fuck out of someone and like just treating a lady with respect. Right. We were like, (laughs) you should expect more. 
from the person that you're You're dating. Right. And that's how we wanted to make her feel. And in a strange way, it made Josh and I closer because we were like, we're in this together to like do this for this person we both care about. So there was no like jealousy. Because I always thought like, oh, if I saw him doing it, that would be the line where like I'd get jealous. And luckily it wasn't. What's very strange is I have been very, very jealous most of my life. And I, well, I sometimes wonder if that's because I was a cheater, so I just assumed other people were. Mm. But I think it's about the, like, not feeling chosen. And with Josh, I know, mm. like, I'm constantly being chosen because he clearly has, like, he always comes back home, you know? And there's something yeah. about that, like, we are actively choosing to be together every day. Um, and we know that because we do get to go out and date other people and, like, see what's out there. Yeah. And we're like, meh. Aww. <laughs> I mean, sorry to anyone we've dated, but like, no, you know, in comparison. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm glad you're marrying him and not any of the. Mehs. Oh, yeah. No, I've been engaged a bunch before. It's embarrassing. Really? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's very You're like Julia here. Roberts in Runaway Bride. Oh my God, no, I dated losers who like I would then like con into proposing to me <laughs> and then I would never plan a wedding because I didn't want to actually marry them. It was a really, I was in therapy a long time. Um, Did you keep all the rings? There was only one other ring, and mm. yes, I kept it. He broke up with me, though. Oh, so you got to keep it. Yeah, and it was my grandmother's diamond that he had oh. set in like a very, very nice setting with rubies, but no, there was no. Yeah. Will you ever wear that ring? I'm actually thinking of giving it to my mom because <laughs> it was like her mom's diamond, yeah. and she loves it, and I'm not going to wear it again, and so I think I might just get it re- She always talks about how much she loves it, so I think That's at our wedding, sweet... I'm going to have it resized and give it to her. Oh, yeah. I love that. And then my engagement ring with Josh is um, he had... So Josh has been married before. He was married in his 20s. Okay. Um, and he had given her his grandmother's ring, and then she had given it back. So he was like, even though I was fine with it, he was like, I'm not going to... This has already had a divorce on it. Like, let's not use She this. gave it back. She, she gave, gave it back, yeah. yeah. It was like a family. So we took the diamond from that ring and had it set in my... Which I'm not wearing today because I've lost weight recently, and it's too big for my fingers. All right. Um, we had it set in a new setting for me, and then we took the gold from it and made his wedding band. So his grandmother's oh, ring cool. is now sort of oh, repurposed. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I feel like Beth is finding out all these new things about me today. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's some of it that I knew. Yeah. But there are some, a lot of the details within it that I didn't know. Yeah. I know. But that's so fun. Yeah. Is because we're sort of just getting to know each other again. Yeah, I was I was talking to um, I was talking to Peter about this yesterday. I was like, I, I I love that I get to spend time with you in outside of college, having yes. been like just like and like 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 friends through like being in the community, like the theater oh, yeah. community, but not like, hey, we're we're going to this show tonight, like we you know, and cut to now and just like doing very similar things to what we were doing a little bit different. Yeah. But like, well, I was so like nice. an admirer of Beth. That's how I feel like it was. Like, it was oh. like, I loved the work Beth did and like always had like a talent crush on Beth. Stop oh. it. Seriously. I was so impressed with you in college. And so, I mean, I knew we were friendly. We weren't not friendly, but I wasn't like, I can call Beth up and we can go have dinner. So well, it's so We were nice. in different improv groups. So yes. I was I was in the comedy improv group and, of and course. you were in the dramatic improv <laughs> Shocker. Wait, dramatic improv? Yeah. yeah. It's actually... It's amazing. Very fun. Yeah. And I think that huh. we should do it sometime. Oh my God, yes. Oh, we could do it at Persisters even. 
I, my like, favorite scene I've ever done is with Katie Hartman, and I still remember it. She, she knows exactly what scene two I saw her, and I was like, that one scene, and she goes, I know. <laughs> I know what scene you're talking about. I can still remember the way she like touched my scarf. Like it's like so, so funny. Yeah, we had this teacher at college who would, um, who who didn't she passed away last year? Yeah, was it last year? Yeah, she passed away. Um, Fanshire, the best she, woman, and she would she did these classes for I mean a lot of the time freshmen. Mm-hmm. You come in, and she'd have she'd be like, "Here's your relationship. Here's what's happening." go yep and then but like she would tell you but not not the class right and it'd be like it'd be like your mother and daughter and then the guy who you're both dating is going to walk in also he gave you both aids right yeah (laughs) she used to say rotten it up so she'd create these ridiculous scenarios in order for us to like emotionally connect yeah and i think like the 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 further you got into doing it, the less ridiculous the scenarios sure. needed to be. But especially when you're like 18. When you're 18, it's like somebody says, go do whatever you want and yeah. like open yourself up. It's like, <gasps> what? Okay, I'll do it. Yeah. I remember she, her telling me, she was like, um, Beth, do you, um, do you use humor to mask your pain? <laughs> No, what? <laughs> Did Why? that make you cry? <laughs> I just, I think it was the first time I felt seen or understood yeah. because um, I think even though I've done like comedy in different forms my entire life, I had never like, like gone, I didn't know like comedy was my thing when I was 18. Right. Like I had a, like a feeling, but like then Rose, thank you so thank much. You. For thank you. Thank you. Thank you. To everybody listening, we'll let you know when we do our dramatic improv show, and we will invite you all. We could do a dramatic podcast show. Ooh, stay tuned. Dun, dun. <laughs>